0: Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: Is the media breaking democracy? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Box Conversations.
0: Authoritarian rule is increasingly threatening democracy as the world's dominant system of government. As misinformation and so-called fake news continues to be rapidly distributed on the internet, our reality has become increasingly shaped by false information. Prime Minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, has secured a fourth consecutive landslide. Republicans are pushing a series of new
2: voting rules across the country that aim at restricting access to American voters. The pandemic has been the crisis they've been-
1: Hitler was right on one You will vote for President Trump on election day, or we will come after you. It seems like we're living through a uniquely perilous time for democracy. The threats from disinformation, authoritarianism, and populist movements are all around us, seemingly all the time. And because so much of the disruption is happening online, the chaos we're experiencing feels very new. But a recently published book argues that these threats aren't new at all. And in fact, they're not threats to democracy in the way we typically think. They're threats to a certain kind of democracy we've gotten used to over the last century or so. The book is called The Paradox of Democracy, and it argues that free expression in democratic society has always been a double-edged sword. On the one hand, Democracies require an open society in which anyone can say almost anything. And yet, because of that very freedom, democratic cultures are often undermined from within by demagogues, by bad faith actors, by fascists. This is a pattern that has recurred throughout history, going all the way back to ancient Greece. And seeing it clearly, allows us to appreciate the real challenge of democracy. A wide-open culture in which everything, including reality itself, is up for grabs. All right, look. This new book, The Paradox of Democracy, which is fantastic and very much available in stores near you, it was co-written by me. Alongside media studies professor, Zach Gershberg. And Rather than just hear from me about it, I wanted to invite someone onto the show who spent a ton of time thinking about the intersection of media and democracy. And that person is Margaret Sullivan. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Sean. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. So I'm the media columnist for The Washington Post, a former public editor of The New York Times. And before that, I was the top editor of the Buffalo News, which is my hometown daily. Go Bills. I've been a journalist for over 40 years and I've seen firsthand the way that the internet and digital media have not only changed newsrooms, but have changed the press in America and the people
1: it serves. Margaret, these are all the reasons I wanted to have you on the show to talk with me about my new book.
2: Sean Illing, thank you so much for coming on your own show.
1: Yeah, thank you for hosting my own show. (laughs) It's very weird to have the tables turned.
2: It is a little weird, sure, but the tables are turned here for a good reason. Yes. We're here to talk about your new book, The Paradox of Democracy. It's a great book that everybody should run out and buy.
1: Thank you.
2: And it's an extremely meaty topic. (laughs) So let's jump right in. There's a lot of books out there right now about democracy. I even have one called Ghosting the News published in 2020, about the demise of local newspapers and the effect on American democracy. But your book comes at things from quite a different angle. It's not a rending of our garments about the demise of democracy. (laughs) It's coming at that problem, I would say, a slant. And so I wonder if you could take us through the thesis of the book as a sort of starting point.
1: Yeah, sure. I set out in 2016, I started thinking about writing a book. And I guess it was going to be one of the kind of democracy is dying books, which has become a genre ever since. Although I was kind of more interested in fascism in particular and how fascism has only ever emerged out of democratic societies. Like, Surely there was something to be explored there. And I got invited to give a speech. Speech at Idaho State University, and this was a month or two before Trump was elected in 2016. And I gave my little spiel about Trump and Trumpism. And I'm sure I was very apoplectic about what it all meant and (laughs) and where we were going. But after I gave that talk, I ended up spending some time with my friend Zach, who I knew from way back in the day. We went to graduate school together, who's a media historian and a media theorist. And we got to talk, and it forced me to kind of step back and think a little bit differently about democracy and media and politics and all of it, I had realized that I hadn't really understood the power of media to not just reflect our world, but to actually shape it. I had still thought of media as a tool of human culture rather than a driver of it. But it's really both of those things. And that completely changed my understanding of the political world. And that was really the beginning of what became this book. And I guess my hope is that this book will help at least a few people (laughs) see more clearly that the disorder we're experiencing today is different because Twitter and social media is new. But historically speaking, the disorder is not new. The angst and the fear we have about Twitter and online conspiracy theories and misinformation and all the chaos that that is causing That mirrors the disruptions we've seen in earlier periods of democratic history, particularly when we have changes in our media environment. This stuff, this chaos is baked into democratic life. And so what we wanted to do here was try to put the current moment in a broader historical context and maybe actually make us feel better to know that we're not necessarily on some unique historical precipice. We've been here before. This is different, but it's not new
2: yeah and it actually it did make me feel better about all of that because i've been in a fairly despairing mode about the state of what i call democracy i think you call liberal democracy <laughs> not only in the united states but in the world and so it does provide perspective and context to say we may not have been exactly in this place before because i do think that the media change that's happened with the internet and with social media is so incredibly disruptive. I mean, it's been compared to the coming of the printing press, that radical. Yeah, It's pretty radical.
1: Yeah. I think it's important to understand what I mean when I'm talking about the power of media, right? So like in ancient Athens and Rome, free speech and rhetoric were vital to the birth of democracy, but both of those cultures were upended by sophistry and spectacle and crowd-pleasing demagogues. In the 15th century, as you alluded to, the printing press Was born, and that led to the mass production of books and newspapers, and that helped spawn the Enlightenment and the democratic revolutions of the 18th century. But it also paved the way to catastrophic religious conflicts across the continent. In the 19th century, we have another huge revolution in media. We have the telegraph and then the penny press, and these things were essential to spreading liberal democratic norms, but they were also essential in giving early platforms to nativist and nationalist. And that helped prepare the ground for fascism and things like that. And again, fascism, we get that in the early 20th century. And that was not possible without the new mass media, like film and radio, which were indispensable vehicles for propaganda. And then later in the century, we get TV. And that totally transformed our political culture. And we'll get into that. But I say all that to say, the thing to notice about all these examples is not just that they're enabled by these revolutions in communications, but that they demonstrate the paradox that I'm trying to get at in this book, which is that new media technologies can be used for good or bad ends. And there's just no guarantees on which way it will go. Facebook gave us the Arab Spring. It also helped give us QAnon, right? But when these big revolutions happen, they really do upend democratic cultures. That is something that has happened over and over and over again.
2: I think that's all really interesting and true. And certainly, even from an individual perspective, I'm on Twitter a lot and I can see the positives and the negatives of it on a daily basis. You know, it is amazing to be able to get one's message out to the world. It's also terrible to get the abuse, the harassment and the craziness that often comes with it so it is really a double-edged sword and i think social media in general is and facebook probably is the mother or i guess given it's zuckerberg father of all that yeah we can't turn the clock back and i don't know that we'd want to but boy it sure has been pretty bad in a lot of ways yeah yeah because even just in talking about the distant past you use the term liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. So I want you to bear down on that a little bit. What do you mean by that? And how do you differentiate it from democracy generally? We got to define the terms here.
1: Definitely. We need to do that because democracy and liberalism are very different things, even though they're often mixed up together. We think democracy is fundamentally a decision to open up the public sphere and let people speak freely. It really is a culture of open communication which is why we say that democracy is largely free expression and its consequences. Democracy is not just a body of institutions or practices or just a process for choosing leaders. I mean, it's certainly all of those things too. But to say that a state is democratic is actually to say very little about how it's governed. And the book is trying to remind people that the instruments of democracy, free expression, and open media environment, they can be turned against it. All right, that's democracy. So what the hell is liberalism? The term is used in two different ways. In American politics, it just means the opposite of conservative. What we mean is liberalism in the broader historical sense. We're talking about the defense of minority rights, the rule of law, the peaceful acceptance of transfers of power, and all the institutions and cultural norms that sustain those things.
2: So you, when you say liberalism, you do mean a kind of political slant or point of view.
1: I mean a culture, right? A culture backed up and reinforced by institutions that in various ways impose constraints on power, mostly state power. But that is not democracy as such, because many other forms of government can emerge out of the chaos of democratic culture, like fascism, for instance, or a populist a liberal regime like Hungary today, or even a state like Russia in recent years. I think Russia now is just a full-blown police state. But for years it was a kind of a liberal democracy in the sense that Putin, despite all his repressive policies, was very popular. And he may be a tyrant, but he's also populous. And we would never think of these countries as democracies. And they're not in the sense that they've shapeshifted into Autocracies, but to the extent that they are or were popular, to the extent that the leaders in those countries were or are popular, they were democratic in some basic sense. And that's why I really do think it's important to disentangle liberalism from democracy, because liberalism is a culture of norms and practices that, you know, it's like democracy with legal buffers. and it checks the worst pathologies of democracy and steers us in a direction that most of us want to go. It helps preserve the freedoms that make democracy possible, but it can go another way.
2: Your book is called The Paradox of Democracy. Yeah. What's the paradox here?
1: Well, the paradox is what I said a little bit earlier, which is that a democracy, in order to be a democracy, relies on a free and open society. It allows for freedom of expression. And the paradox is that that very freedom can unleash forces that will implode it from within. Because of that openness, It also empowers bad faith actors, demagogues, populist, fascist, to use that openness and to use that media to propagandize and destroy democracy from within. That is the paradox.
2: So it's kind of a communication free for all, right? Yeah. Anybody can say what they want to say. It's kind of a circus of people saying what they want to say. And some of it is destructive and some of it is veering towards authoritarianism, and that's what free speech is. Should there be any limits on it?
1: Well, that's the question. I mean, what does free speech actually mean? This is very interesting. In the book, we take our cues from the ancient Greeks. and They had dueling conceptions of free speech. There was what they called isagoria, which is the right of everyone to participate in a public debate. And that was in conflict with what they called parisia, which is the right to speak without limits. And doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that exactly describe the discourse we're having now about free speech, about what it means and what its limits are, it's the same argument. And just like back then, there's no simple answer. The tension here is precisely the defining tension of democracy. When you let anyone speak, you do not know what they're gonna say. You do not know who will be persuaded of what or how they'll be persuaded. And you don't know what the consequences of all that will be. But when speech is truly free, everything is kind of up for grabs. After reading my book, The Paradox of Democracy, Margaret Sullivan wants to know, how worried am I? I'll share those thoughts after the break.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, but it's more than just a tagline
1: Borough.com slash box.
2: So, you know, one thing I I've, I've wondered about reading your book and now talking to you is how concerned or worried are you about the state of American democracy, the state of democracy in the world? I mean, because you come at it from a different point of view, do you tend to think, well, this is just the way it's got to be when we have this chaotic free expression run amok and that's okay or not? You know, how worried are you or are you worried?
1: Oh, I'm worried, especially in the American context, because I think the failure to see this distinction is actually making it more difficult for us to defend the liberal democracy that we have. So I think many of us want democracy to be a battle of ideas and policies rooted in facts and evidence-based discourse. But I really do see democracy largely as a competition of communication styles where every imaginable kind of rhetoric and bullshit artistry and demagoguery is allowed to flourish. And that means it's a fight not just between arguments, but between styles of communication, between ways of thinking. And it is always, whether we recognize it or not, a battle for power. And a concern that I have is that I do not think the Democratic Party in this country gets this. I really don't. Just look at the Democratic Party over the last several years. Even when they hold power, they seem incapable of exercising it. Why is that? Probably lots of reasons. But I think one is that they can't stop believing that democracy should be practiced in a certain way and in a certain manner and in accordance with certain rules. And I think that's because they're devoted to liberal democracy. But here's what I don't think they get. And this gets to your question. (laughs) The Republicans are not devoted to liberal democracy. And I think they're actually willing to play dice with the democracy that we have, right? Republicans are like, look, almost half the country will follow us no matter what we do. Many of them only consume media that affirms their biases anyway. So let's just seize and exercise power by any means necessary. And you see this with the Supreme Court overturning Roe. Right. I mean,
2: that's where you really see
1: it happening. Yes. They don't care, Margaret. If people like you or me are spending all of our waking hours calling them fascists or writing articles, debunking their lives, why would they? Their voters don't care. Their voters don't trust us. They aren't listening. Yeah. They have their own self-protecting media ecosystem.
2: Right. Much more so than Democrats do. Right. Well, Democrats don't have that at all, actually. No. Because most of the mainstream media would like to see itself as taking things, you know, we have a big tent, we want everybody in it, yeah. we're not on anybody's side, we get our back when somebody says, you're lefty. We want to be seen as impartial, objective, down the middle, neutral. Mm -hmm. I don't think Fox News is spending a lot of time worrying about that stuff coming from the other direction. Hell no. No. So that makes a big difference. Even the organizations that do see themselves as progressive, they don't seem to have the killer instinct that that Fox or Newsmax or OAN
1: have. No, then that's huge, Margaret, right? I mean, this is another sign that I think Democrats in particular are hostage to the assumptions of liberal democracy confusing liberalism with democracy, right? They think it's sufficient to just track and follow public opinion. But I don't think Republicans worry as much about that. They use the asymmetries in the media environment to create salience around issues that favor them. And then they drive public opinion with persuasive rhetoric and propaganda.
2: Right. The caravan coming up to the Mexico-US border, the incredible threat of the caravan, right? Which seems to crop up only when, like, for example, gas prices are going down or something like that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, fancy that, right?
2: Yeah, it's a strange connection, but it does surface.
1: But that's the thing. So I think, I don't know, Trump's contribution, a lot of contributions here, most of them, all of them, egregious, but maybe his real contribution was to show the Republican Party what's actually possible if you stop caring about the liberal-democratic game and just go after power. So the Democrats accept the constraints of liberalism and Republicans ruthlessly exploit the advantages our media and our political system afford them. They're playing different games. That's where we are. And so, like, we've taken some heat because people think that we're claiming in the book that liberal democracy is dead. I would never claim that. I mean, it's always a possibility. But we are saying that the age of liberal democracy is dead. And that means that this long post-war period of mostly stable liberal democracy was a period in which a gatekeeping media system managed a norms-driven discourse. And that is over. Now everyone has the power of mass communication. Now information is impossible to contain, impossible to control. Now the state and the elites can't dictate the stories a society is telling about itself There is no monoculture. There is no public discourse. It's a kind of choose your own adventure information space where you can shop for your preferred version of reality. The world in which the trusted newswoman or newsman delivers the truth and the elite media steers the public conversation is D E A D dead. You know, that elite driven liberal democratic discourse is just one of the games in town. And it is competing with populist firebrands and grifters and provocateurs who are using alternative media and the fractured world we have now to engage the public directly. And that is a, that's a huge problem.
2: I mean, do you have the feeling that these issues that we're talking about that are so troubling can be addressed or do you just have to sort of sit back and see them and say, Oh, well, you know, so be it. I've spent a lot of time trying to call out both the right wing and the mainstream media for their failures and flaws Sometimes it gets a lot of response, but I don't know that it actually changes anything. And that's just coming from me as a media columnist. But (laughs) can anything change this? And if so, what can change it? Does it take a visionary leader? What are the things that can actually affect the course?
1: I think it's very difficult because I think the problems really begin with our ecology, with the technology that is governing our politics, right? And that's what we're trying to do here. Because to the extent that the problem is at that level, it's not a simple fix, right? It may not be fixable at all. The reason why we think communication should be at the center of how we think about democracy is because it is really central to how we co-create our world. The world is big and we don't have direct access to most of it. So we are relying on media and communication technologies to help us understand it. And media ecologists have been pointing out for years that certain kinds of media tend to create certain kinds of social and political environments. So, what we're doing in this book is saying, okay, if that's true, and we think it is, then students of democracy, which is a form of politics uniquely grounded in expression, should probably take this more seriously than we have so far. And the fact that we are now in the world that TV built has really changed what's possible in our politics and how our politics unfolds and the kinds of people who can be elected and the kinds of things that they can say. And the internet has kind of amplified that, but the problems here really are structural. We can't do anything about the fact that Republicans and Democrats often inhabit opposing epistemological worlds. You and I can't transcend that problem. We just can't. And I just want to acknowledge that head on. Because refusing to see it makes the problem even worse. It's very, very hard to see a way out of it. But that's not to say it's hopeless, but it's deep.
2: Do you see any politicians or public figures who seem to have a handle on how to communicate better in this new world? I mean, some clearly better than others. Are some very good at it?
1: Yeah, Donald Trump. Okay, It's like the platonic ideal of like a master communicator in this weird, convergent digital social media, televisual world, right? Right. Again, it's all about getting attention.
2: No, yes, I agree with that. Do you see any people who, and I don't want to say on the left or in the center, I don't want to say that, those who are not part of the effort to sort of tear down liberal democracy, those who are maybe interested in keeping it, do you see anyone who's interested in that communicating very effectively, communicating and acting in a way that is productive and good and helpful in this realm.
1: I'm not sure. I mean, who comes to mind for you?
2: I mean, I've been thinking about the January 6th hearings, and I think they are quite effective. You know, they're not wonky or boring in the way that people thought they might be. They are very contained. They're very civil. They're very evidence-based. They are getting a lot of eyeballs (laughs) and are they going to change some people's minds i think so
1: yeah i'd see i don't think so i don't think so at all i mean the hearings such as they are have been conducted about as well as i could possibly imagine they actually brought in a former abc news tv producer or whatever to help stage and choreograph
2: i mean i think that's just smart
1: i mean it is the hearings are good. And I'm glad that they are happening. It's important to get that stuff on the forensic record. It's important for precedent. It's important for lots of reasons. But I see no reason to think it's actually going to move the political needle in any way at all, right? I mean, the percentage of the country that is invested in the other side doesn't care, isn't watching, won't be persuaded, To the extent that the hearings are persuading and moving people, it is probably moving people who were already persuaded anyway.
2: Well, it's not moving them then.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I don't know what good it's going to do politically, which is not to say it's not worth doing. But in this context, if we're talking about effective communication, we are talking about communication that helps advance your political cause, your political project. And I'm not sure this will. I'm really not.
2: What about people like Bernie Sanders or AOC who seem to have a certain amount of power to break through in some ways, similar to some of those on the right. Do you see them as being effective champions of what we're talking about?
1: I think they're certainly trying. I mean, they do better than a lot of their peers. But I think this is a case where people on the left run into a structural problem. There's an asymmetry. Conservatives are playing a totally different game. They're not committed to those old journalistic norms, and they own that. They've created a giant political messaging machine that has taken the place of news, and it also works to discredit or undermine mainstream news. The problem for progressives is that they don't have anything comparable to this.
2: So it's a little bit frustrating to talk with you about this and to hear you about this, I know. Well, I mean, I think it's worth acknowledging this, yeah. that this is really important stuff. And it seems like you just don't see a way out of it or even maybe want to find a way out of it. Is that fair?
1: No, hell no. I, w- <laughs> I would love to.
2: Okay, good. I'm glad you say hell no. Let's talk about what the solutions and what the direction might be instead of just talking about how we got here or what's wrong.
1: I think part of talking about the solutions is also like truly understanding the problems. Okay. I think some of these confusions around liberalism and democracy have gotten in the way of actually accurately diagnosing the problems. And this book is more of a work of diagnosis and really history than it is of prescriptive. Right. I
2: mean, I don't expect you to have the concluding chapter that says, oh, and by the way, here's a 10-point plan for fixing it. Yeah. So granted. And at the same time, I wonder if... You must, having delved into it so deeply, understood it so much, understood the contradictions and the misunderstandings in the history, give me a sense of what might be the way out or the beginnings of a way out. What could come along? What can come along? What can we encourage to happen that will save something that's really worth saving?
1: Well, I think we can get there. I mean, for this kind of conversation, since you're a journalist, I'm a journalist, maybe it helps to talk about what journalist can do, what the role of journalism might be, like how it can deal with this moment. Something I've struggled with, and some days are better than others, but what has frustrated me is that I'm not all that sure that journalists matter as much as we once did in this fragmented, saturated media landscape, where it feels like almost nothing matters, where it feels like almost everything is discardable. Every story, every scandal, no matter how important, just somehow falls into the ether of the news cycle.
2: I mean, we saw that so much during the 2016 Trump campaign when all these things came along that surely this scandal would be the one to take Trump down, whether it was the Access Hollywood tape or the disparagement of the reporter who had a disability or the disparagement of the Gold Star parents. Mm -hmm. Surely this would be the thing that would be the end. But of course, it never, ever was.
1: Yeah, it never is. Right. And so, I mean, You even told me when we were talking earlier that you've kind of become a little more disillusioned.
2: (laughs) Oh, no, I I actually agree with what you said, that I'm not at all sure that journalism is up to this moment. It does what it does. It reveals things. It reports on things. It can help us understand, but it's no longer all that trusted and it's no longer any kind of a gatekeeper. So, yeah, I don't think journalism is going to change the world here.
1: Yeah, I don't either. Like The focus on media ecology is super important to what we're doing here because it's imposing boundaries and creating an incentive structure in which we're all operating. And so you have these important media ecologists like Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman, and they were making this point that there was a shift, right? I mean, you go way back in history from oral to a typographic culture, and then a culture dominated mostly by the written word. And then we moved into the image era where TV and images Kind of dominated everything. And a culture that communicates mostly through the written word or engages with the world mostly through the written word will have a very different kind of politics than a culture that communicates only or mostly through TV. You know, TV is all about movement and action. And because it's image based, it's not really conducive to any kind of logical discourse. It's mostly about invoking emotional responses. So you can think about it this way, right? Like, what's the purpose of every TV show, right? Whether it's news or sports or whatever. The purpose is to capture an audience and sell products to that audience through ads. Now, media ecologists will say the purpose of a medium cannot be separated from the content it produces, right? So TV has to be entertaining. It's image-based, so the people on it, news anchors or actors, they got to be attractive. And now politics, because so much of it happens on and through TV, has to reflect these biases. Look at our presidential debates. Our presidential debates don't even pretend to be serious discussions of issues. They ask someone to make the case for universal health care in like 60 seconds. You know, that's not a debate. It's a TV spectacle that works as a vehicle for the penis pill commercials or whatever the ads are selling, right? You know, I've been on cable news. It's awful, right? You're there to perform and speak in sound bites, and you can't break through if you don't do that. And I'll just ask you, like, how do you think all those changes to the incentive structure for politicians and for journalists competing for attention in this environment, how do you think that changes the kinds of people who ascend, who capture attention, the kinds of people who win?
2: Well, I mean, I think that when a lot of, regular people think about the media, what they're thinking about reasonably enough is cable news. Yeah, That's sort of their idea of the media. And they're not wrong about that because cable news kind of is the distillation of today's media. And I've been on Fox once or twice. I've been on the other cable networks a bunch of times. And there have been times when I felt like I was able to say something kind of nuanced. <laughs> And that I believed. And lots of times you have the sense that people are there to kind of get their outrage on. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you feed that, you're preaching to the choir but you're providing what is kind of wanted there. So it's a tough world. I mean, I'm a writer, so I try to be a little bit more subtle (laughs) in my columns. But yes, I do think that if cable news is the distillation of media today, it's a pretty blunt instrument.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you a question, since we're talking about journalism, at least partly, right? Like, what do you think of as your role as a writer for a paper of record, Do you think that your job is to tell people the truth so that they can make informed decisions? Do you think your job is to get readers and hold attention in order to continue reaching people? I mean, what do you think of as your main role?
2: Yeah, well, I'm a columnist, so I write opinion now. I mean, most of my career has been in a regional newsroom. Where my job was not to opine, but to get regional news out to an audience that needed it. And I believe in that deeply, but it's a very threatened situation. Yeah. But these days at the Washington Post, I think that my job as a columnist is to write interesting enough columns, often very close to what's happening in the news, that allow me to say something that I believe in and that I think is important. And I, have a lot of freedom. I get to say, I'm going to write about this. I'm not going to write about that. And so I try to choose things that I think are true to my interests and my beliefs. And you have to have a pretty strong ego to do that. You have to think that your ideas, your point of view is worth hearing. And then it's really important to say it in a way that is engaging and a way that is persuasive. So that's what I try to do. I try to do work that I find personally to be worth spending my time on.
1: <laughs> do you think the news media has an obligation to serve the interest of the audience?
2: Of course.
1: Or do you think it has an obligation to serve the audience exactly what it wants, even if what it wants is garbage?
2: No, 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 no. No. I think it has a strong obligation, a primary obligation to serve the public interest. And I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think you can Absolutely, can serve the public interest while being interesting and entertaining and persuasive, and somebody that people say, Yeah, I like to read her and still be serving the public interest. In fact, I think if you're devoted to serving the public interest and you're intent on being as boring and pedantic as possible, you're not doing your job at all. You have to do both.
1: What's the public interest? Who determines that? I do. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I mean, that I'm joking about that. I mean, look, I think that I believe in human rights. I believe in civil liberties. I believe in equality, the rule of law, voting rights. I don't want to see the United States become an authoritarian regime. And I think there's reason to think that it's leaning that way. So that concerns me. And I don't think that's in the public interest. It may be in the interest of certain members of the public and certain members of the political class, but not the general public.
1: Do you think in order to do that effectively, you have to appear to be, maybe not you because you're a columnist, but people who are more kind of straight news reporters have to maintain a pose of neutrality in order to effectively inform people?
2: I think they should be devoted to fairness. That's the way I like to frame this question about old school objectivity that everybody seems to want to debate all the time. I think that if we talk about factuality and fairness and impartiality when it comes to looking at evidence, then I think we're going to be okay. I think it's a big mistake to treat things that are unequal as being equal. So if that's how you want to define objectivity, which is this kind of both sides-ism that we've come to recognize it's not a good way to go. No, I don't like that. But I do think that true fairness is a good idea. And it's hard to codify that. Like Potter Stewart, I know it when I see it.
1: Well, this is part of the problem, right? What if people don't care about fairness, right? And this is reminding me, because you and I both, we share an interest in local journalism and the collapse of local journalism. And I think we both think that's been devastating. But you wrote about Chris Collins, who's a former, I think he's a former.
2: Yes, former.
1: (laughs) Republican congressman. Correct. He was arrested in 2018 for insider trading. He was indicted. He denied the charges.
2: He ran for re-election.
1: Right. Suspended his campaign, blah, blah, blah. He started denying the charges again, and then he won. And I think you are right to see that as evidence of the catastrophe of losing local journalism because this guy was going into diners and shaking hands, and people had no idea that he was indicted. and. I would suggest to you that it may be worse than that, Margaret. What if many of them did and they just don't give a damn?
2: I think that actually was the case. And I talked to Nate McMurray, who was his opponent running against Collins. Yeah, And this is part of the Buffalo area that still has a newspaper and four TV stations and a public radio station and an independent digital outlet. So Buffalonians could be very well informed, but... When McMurray got out into more far-flung areas of his district, one of which was a literal news desert as defined by the people who define news deserts, he would say to people in diners or whatever, don't you know, surely, you know, you don't want to vote for Chris Collins. You want to vote for me, right? Because he's been indicted for insider trading. And McMurray told me that people would either tell him, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. That's fake news. Or they would sort of shrug it off. yeah. And shrugging it off, I think, arguably is more troubling because that means they do know and they don't care. Yeah. And I've had some people tell me they would much rather see an indicted Republican in office in that district than a non-indicted Democrat. Yeah. And that speaks to the tribalism that you're talking about.
1: That's right. I think that part of the reason they don't give a damn is that they exist in a broader media environment that has reduced politics to a tribal sport and all that matters is picking a winner and more importantly, sticking it to the other side. Yeah. And I think all political press, not just cable TV or television, I think it starts there, helped create this way of talking about politics as pure sport and theater as a kind of cynical game. Because like TV news, every news organization has to make money in order to survive. And that creates perverse incentives to grab attention, to placate customers, or sometimes to feign neutrality in order to not give the appearance of bias, even though the people you're trying to reach are going to perceive bias no matter what. And I think that's part of the reason why the Republicans very wisely realized this a long time ago. And you can go back to Newt Gingrich, who sort of responded to this model accordingly and kind of just did what sports fans do. They just work the refs and scream bias at every turn. And it works. It still, you know, it still works.
2: Every day, because there's such a strong feeling on the part of the mainstream media, this desire to be seen as fair and neutral. I mean, the worst thing you can say is you're spouting DNC talking points that that will make them shift the Overton window way to the right. But of course, you cannot win that argument. You just move it. You know, you move the goalposts. Yeah.
1: Okay, we're going to take one last short break. When we're back, is speech in the United States really free? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area.
2: Do we have free speech in the U.S. where everybody says whatever they want to say?
1: Sure, I think so. I, I mean, is it perfectly free? I, I don't know. Is a platonic ideal of a truly free speech society? I don't know. It's as close as we've ever been. I'd say it's as close as any society has ever been. The challenge of democracy is finding ways to navigate all of that without losing the freedom that makes democracy possible. And so that doesn't mean you shouldn't impose guardrails on society so that it doesn't implode from within. I mean... Liberalism is very good in that it helps preserve the conditions that maintain a democracy. It helps check some of those pathologies of democracy that can lead to its self-destruction. I think free speech is justified because it's the lifeblood of democracy. But this is important. Not necessarily because it leads to truth (laughs) or a sound marketplace of ideas. I mean, hopefully it leads to more intelligent politics, but sometimes it just leads to Pizzagate. It's an old cliche that Perception matters more than reality, but what citizens in a democracy think is true is more important than what is actually true, because people's actions proceed from their beliefs. But despite all the risk and misinformation and conspiracy theories and all of that stuff, the democracy still remains the best form of political life because it offers freedom of expression and the possibility of confronting power, but it is a unwieldy, uncertain, contingent thing, and we're living through that now. If
2: you could, would you change that about the United States and about free speech? I mean, when you talk about guardrails, what guardrails could there be?
1: That is a big question.
2: I mean, there clearly can be some guardrails on social media.
1: Yeah. The question is not whether we should have any kind of guardrails. There's the old, you can't yell fire in a crowded room sort of thing. The question is who gets to determine those guardrails? You know, I have said this elsewhere. I don't want. The people at twitter and facebook determining what's acceptable to say and what isn't but i think there's also a case to be made for what sometimes people call militant democracy or defensive democracy which is just finding ways to use the law to impose certain constraints on speech in order to like avoid some of these pathologies from becoming like real political hazards but that is that is something that has to be navigated it's a tension that you have to live in but it's never clear where the line is and where it isn't it's a constantly moving thing that you just you have to adjust to in real time
2: so i want to ask you for one thing that could be done in order to move this situation in a good direction i mean you talk in your book about state sponsored revival of local print news for example
1: well the thesis of the book is that these core problems are baked into the structure of democracy. But sure, there are a few things that would bolster our democratic culture. I mean, first, people like to talk about resuscitating civics education. And I got to say, I think that's mostly a waste of time. I mean, it's fine to teach people how bills become laws. But we're talking about a world in which people are overwhelmed with choices and bullshit. They should be taught about communication technologies and the rhetorical techniques they rely on so they have some chance of recognizing when and how they're being manipulated. This sort of media literacy should be universally taught in secondary education, at least. Second, democracy has to be participatory or it's meaningless. John Stuart Mill made a very useful distinction between active and passive citizenship. Today, I think a lot of people feel estranged from the political process. They feel reduced to being spectators of their own democracy, for good reasons. But it's only through real engagement, real discussion, and collective action that we become members of a democratic community. And this connects pretty directly with the last thing i'll say we have to do something something to reinforce local journalism and by extension local politics we know that citizens trust local news more than national news because it's more connected with their lived experience and we know that local newspapers have always been crucial catalysts for the sorts of social connections That make up the backbone of democracy what we have now is a highly nationalized politics and a nationalized politics is a more abstract more narrativized politics fueled by cable news and social media and that grinds everything down to the most simplistic right left tribalism possible And we think that local decentralized media should be seen as a right of all citizens. This is what the founders intended. The press clause of the First Amendment affirms the right of access to newspapers. This is something that could be subsidized federally. And it's something in principle, Democrats and Republicans should be able to get behind. And look, just to be super clear, This won't solve all the problems, not even close. And we know that even a reinvigorated local print media will never be the dominant source of news in the 21st century. But it can at least offer some kind of counterbalance to the fragmented, polarizing impact of broadcast and digital media. I'm hoping that what we've seen in the (laughs) last several years is a reminder of how kind of fragile this whole thing is. Democracy demands ethical commitments from the public and from politicians. And I think we have learned that the values that undergird those commitments, tolerance, respect for minority rights, respect for rule of law, a love of truth and justice, you know, we bring those values to democracy. We force our democracy to bend to those principles. You know, They are not inherent to democracy itself. And there are people within our democracy who are mobilizing against those values. And that contest for power is inescapable. But there's lots of examples and evidence of people recognizing the threats and mobilizing against them and organizing. And it's an ugly, messy affair, but it's not all bleak. I mean, sometimes you have to be reminded of your frailty (laughs) in order to defend it. And I see there are reasons to think that that is happening.
2: That at least we understand how fragile this is a little bit more than we used to.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I hope so.
2: Okay, good. Perhaps we'll end on that semi kind of a little bit hopeful note. (laughs) Sean, thank you for coming on your own show to discuss your book, The Paradox of Democracy. It's been an interesting discussion and I appreciate being a part of it.
1: Thank you so, so much, Margaret, for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. And your next book is called Newsroom Confidential. It will be out in October of this year. I encourage everyone to go check it out when it drops, and maybe we'll have you back on the show to talk about it. Cool.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk If you like the show, let us know Can we improve? We want to hear that too We're curious to know what you think what you want more of what we could improve And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com and hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Box Conversations.